Welcome back to Cool Art History. I am the Cool Art Historian, and today I am accompanied by my great friend and good, good. <laughs> <laughs> I am accompanied by my great friend and good colleague Jules in Space. If you haven't figured it out yet, these are our Instagram tags, so please find us and stalk us. Not really, but follow us. <laughs> um, we will be continuing our conversation on white Jesus in this episode. However, this will focus more on the social aspects of our society and how it has transformed our culture. Yeah, I'm Jules, um, and I uh, am a student currently studying, uh, majoring in studio art, um, but I really enjoy uh, studying art history as well and engaging in some independent uh, research projects. And basically today we're going to be talking about um, some readings that we've selected um, from some notable scholars on the subject of how Jesus and imagery of Jesus and depictions of Jesus have evolved throughout time um, in America specifically, and kind of the racial dynamics behind that, um, including depictions, um, early depictions in America of white Jesus and kind of the social context behind that and the meaning behind that, um, and different social groups that employed and social figures that employed that image of white Jesus for different means, um, as well as some counterpoints, some historical counterpoints, such as um, how black American communities constructed Jesus in the 19th century up, up to the uh, early, 20, early 20th century is about uh, kind of our focus today, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, I just want to start with two Bible verses. Um, there, there are only a handful of Bible verses that comment on Jesus's physical depiction. Um, so these two, the first one is an Old Testament um, verse. It's in Isaiah 53, 2, and it is, he grew up before him like a tender, tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire from him. Um, and that is the King James Version. Um, and the second verse is from Revelations 115. And his feet were like unto fine brass, and if they burned in a furnace, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice was the sound of many waters. So those are two, uh, I guess, pretty um, abstract, uh, pretty abstract verses about how Jesus would have looked. Um, the yeah. first one, basically, he was pretty average looking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because Jesus is pretty... Uh... All things considered, he's actually pretty nondescript physically in the Bible. Um, and I think, honestly, that that lack of like a definite physical appearance um, removes an element of humanness mm -hmm. from him, um, increases kind of his uh, divinity, because it removes kind of that aspect of being a very physical, embodied human being. And that was probably... a good point that the authors of the Bible were trying to make. They didn't want us to focus on what he looked like, but what he did. Yeah. I'm just going to ask a question. Like, what, when was the first time you can remember seeing an image of Jesus? I was raised Catholic, so, like, well, <laughs> my baptism? <laughs> I think I was, first. like, not even a year old. <laughs> the very first. What, what image was it? Um... I'm going to assume that it, it was probably the stained glass in my old parish. Um, so behind the altar, uh, very white Jesus in the, the white robe. We're getting a little bit of uh, feedback from our, our uh, 
colleague. Studio hedgehog? Yeah, colleague <laughs> Thistle the Hedgehog, um, PhD. She's, she's having breakfast. <laughs> um, but yeah, so my, I think my first uh, interaction with a depiction of Jesus was definitely probably from the church. Um, and yeah, very white. And growing up in the church, I never really questioned that, never thought anything of it. Um, I think... I think the first time I began questioning things was I was probably like 11 years old when I asked my dad why we're not Jewish when Jesus was Jewish. <laughs> Inquisitive. <laughs> and my dad didn't really have an answer for that. <laughs> That's a good question. That's one of those moments where you look at your kid and you're like, "That's a good question." Um, I think the first time that I think the first representation of Jesus that I saw may have been um, the series of cartoons. I might be completely off. No, no. No, there were some that had Jesus in them. So when I was a kid, uh, my family had this series of cartoons on VHS that was kind of um, sort of versions of Bible stories for kids. Was it VeggieTales? It was not VeggieTales. Oh. Because in VeggieTales, I actually read a biography, uh, autobiography one time uh, by the guy who created VeggieTales, and he specifically said that, uh, I think it was his mother-in-law, um, that <laughs> told him that you cannot make Jesus a vegetable. You can't do it. So he... <laughs> Jesus does not directly appear in VeggieTales because they didn't, oh. you know, because then you have the whole question of if Jesus was a vegetable, what would he be? Oh, no, that, I've never realized. Really, you just, like, blew my childhood up. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's a really important theological question. Maybe oh, we'll investigate God. that next time. But I think that, but in this other series of cartoons we had, um, they were humans, not okay. vegetables. <laughs> um, and although I did love VeggieTales as a kid, um, but yeah, I think that was probably the first image of Jesus that I saw, and he was, um, I mean, you know, it was very stylized. The cartoons were very stylized, but um, I at least perceived him as white in the cartoons, um, along with everybody else. Um, and you touched upon something interesting, too, which is that you have a Catholic upbringing, mm -hmm. right? And I have a Protestant upbringing, Protestant Methodist, um, which kind of differ in some pretty, pretty significant ways, but... Um, we, we kind of share that um, cultural background mm -hmm. and the visualization of Jesus. And I would go so far as to say that when you talk about Jesus, um, pretty much everybody in America, um, in Europe, you know, in what you might call the Western world, um, probably has, yeah, Thistle is still, um, she's actually hard at work on her PhD uh, research right now. Anyway, um, but I would, I would go so far as to say that pretty much probably everybody in what you might call the Western world, when you talk about Jesus, um, immediately they have this image of like a specific uh, man that pops into their head. Uh, white skin, mm -hmm. um, Caucasian guy, blue yeah. eyes, light brown hair parted down the middle, the beard, the robe, yep. you know, the whole deal, right? Um, and it's interesting that that is so ubiquitous because if you think about it like critically, uh, historically, Jesus was a real individual historically. There mm -hmm. are records of his existence um, taken by Roman historians yep. at the time yeah. who, it's important to note, would have had no vested interest in, in proving yeah. his existence because they, um, you know, were not Christian. They did not believe in Christianity. But um, he was certainly a real person, and we can only assume based on his, uh, you know, his location, his geographic location, mm -hmm. and the ethnic group from which he came, he would have been a non-white um, Semitic Jewish man, right? Yeah. Middle Eastern Jewish man. Um, and yet we have this very ubiquitous white image of Jesus. Um, so we're just kind of investigating why that is, really. 
I have a question for you. Okay. Since now we're both like academics and in this field, whenever you think of Jesus, what particular painting do you think of? That's hard for me too. <laughs> I actually, well, yeah. I mean, I actually don't. There, are, there are a few. Um, I don't know where this one came from, but I think you might have the answer to this question. Um, it's a specific painting of like Jesus looking up in a three-quarter view. Um, and there's the sense of light. Are you talking about the 1941? It might the, be. Like the painting, the like it everybody. Like, so interesting thing about this one is, I think if it's the one that um, I'm thinking about, it was painted in 1940 and it's actually the most popular portrait of Christ. Everybody thinks about it because when the painter painted it, um, she's, or he sold it to a publishing company and their main objective was to put this on every single <laughs> Bible ever. <laughs> so it's the most thought of portrait whenever um, someone thinks of Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, personally, I think of like a lot of Botticelli's works. A lot of Botticelli, yeah. 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 That makes, I mean, no, that makes total sense because I also think about, um, you know, Byzantine icons. Oh, I yeah. think about uh, Renaissance, mm -hmm. uh, Christ portraiture. Um, you know, which was also uh, crafted in the image of Eurocentrism, but we're not going to focus on that so much today. It's a whole big thing. <laughs> but indeed, um, I'm just going to briefly touch on this, and then we'll come back to this later, but um, indeed, images of Jesus throughout time have actually changed quite a bit um, because, because originally, um, in addition to being kind of nondescript in the Bible, um, he was also represented in... Um, what you might call like European, or you know, at that time, kind of a, an accurate term for that time period. But um, some of the first sort of visual representations of Jesus were non-figurative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like a lot of the stuff in the Roman catacombs, um, which is actually the idea of the, you know, the fish bumper stickers we see everywhere. Mm -hmm. That was a originally start came from the Roman catacombs, and that that was a symbol meant for Jesus, um, for Christians. So that's mm -hmm. that's interesting. Yeah, it is. There were a number of uh, non-figurative symbols used in the catacombs um, because, of course, Christians at this time in Rome were uh, persecuted. Yeah. And they had to kind of come up with this system of hiding yeah. and concealing their Christianity. Yeah, they were, they were persecuted um, as well as... A lot of that is kind of their own fault, though, and I'm not going to really get into that. Um, that's a whole other story, but... Um, Part of their secrecy uh, and the idea of the Eucharist, which any Catholic listening will understand what that means. Um, Protestants sometimes, and definitely non-Christians, have no idea what I'm talking about. What? Um, <laughs> like the Eucharist, the bread and the wine. Um, Catholics have always believed that during the Eucharist, something magical, godly, like however you want to explain it, happens and the bread and the wine become the physical embodiment of Christ. That that bread is no longer bread, it's not yeast, it's not dough, it is flesh. <laughs> and we're supposed to eat that for Eucharist. And of course, 2,000 years ago, early Christians doing their secret like ceremonies, Romans thought we were cannibals. And that was one reason why we were being persecuted. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I actually, you know, coming from, uh, like I said, a Protestant background, uh, I did not understand what the Eucharist was until, like, embarrassingly late in life, like, I'm, like, last year. To be honest, I still don't get it. 
but you know what it is. I didn't like we didn't have that. Um, I found this out because my boyfriend, who's Italian, who was raised Catholic, mentioned this to me. I, I forget how we ended up on this conversation, but um, he mentioned it to me, and I was like, "What? What? What? Shout out to my boyfriend." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but like, yeah, that that's the Eucharist is one of those things that non-Catholics or protestants who don't um do that regularly like i think methodists and episcopalians for sure have have a eucharist um weekly well no not methodists not, not for methodists. me mm -mm. Yeah. because we we did right? uh, oh my god i just literally forgot the word um for the bread and wine eucharist no no the other communion one. communion I almost said communism just now. <laughs> we had communism. Never, we had communism. <laughs> no, we had communion. Uh, maybe I was ex experienced communion a single digit number of times. Um, I could probably count on one hand the number of times that I participated in communion. And I remember as a kid, I really liked it though because you got a little snack in the middle of the sermon. Uh, I hated, I hated snacky. communion. I hated everything about it because I always thought the little cracker wafer thing they gave you was like, just it tasted like cardboard. See, we didn't have that. We had fresh bread. See, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> now, the thing is, now the wine. Now, now obviously, so like I, I wasn't in the Catholic Church after the age of twelve um, because my family decided to leave for personal reasons. Um, so we became, uh, after a while, we became Episcopalians. So they do the same thing. So. Now the thing I like about my my priest, <laughs> she uh she and yes Episcopalians have women priests for anybody who doesn't know this and this is just mm -hmm. we'll, we'll get back on topic. She she never added that much water to the wine, so it was <laughs> still very good wine. <laughs> Getting a little bit crunk in the still crappy like wafers, <laughs> but hey. <laughs> well, we we had like fresh bread and grape juice. We didn't do wine i don't think and we had like we had little individual cups which i think is different from how mm -hmm. a lot of catholics we churches have like do a it. communion cup like everybody yeah. uses the same cup which right now during covid i was gonna say not during covid <laughs> days they don't this is not a good idea no um but yeah so we um you know different experience um but yeah one of the earliest depictions of, of jesus is called the Alexamenos graffiti in addition to the uh the catacomb mm -hmm. uh, symbol symbolism that you had just talked about one of the earliest depictions of Jesus is called the Alexamenos Graffiti. Um, thought to, it was thought to be an anti-Semitic and anti-Christian image carved by a Roman soldier. Anti-Semitic because there was an idea at the time uh, that Jews worshipped a donkey god. Okay. So basically the Alexamenos Graffiti is um, a figure who appears to be crucified uh, with a donkey's head. And um, there's a man standing in front of this figure and then there's text that says Alexamenos worships his God. So this okay. is one of the earliest figurative representations of Jesus, probably, um, have, that yeah. that we have. And um, you know, it's a shame that this is not a visual medium because, uh, let me tell you, the artistic skill on display <laughs> with this graffiti is amazing. Um, I encourage, I highly encourage you to check it out um, in our image gallery. But Yes, we're going to uh, link to an image gallery that will be public that everyone can view these um, depictions as wanted. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll figure out how to do that. Probably will be a Google's image slide. Google Google's slides? Google slides? Slides, yeah. yeah. Probably going to be one of those things. We'll figure it out. But, um, but yeah, so basically Jesus' uh, kind of mainstream depictions 
have changed significantly throughout time based on time period, uh, location, socio-political context. Um, There's you know. even some Hindu depictions of Christ. Mm -hmm. um, we're not going to talk about those just because like, I couldn't really find a lot of information on them, but Jesus, as the millennials, millennials? as the millennia continues, um, that's us. Yeah, that's us. Um, <laughs> as like thousands of years pass, like there were different depictions in each, um, wherever Jesus kind of was imported to. I think that's a good way of explaining the importation of Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he um, depictions of Christ changed significantly throughout time. The image of white Jesus that we have today in the Western world that's so ubiquitous is actually a very recent um, invention. In America, um, and we're going to talk a lot about the work of Edward J. Bloom. Um, he has done a number of investigations into this subject. Um, he has a very extensive body of work, and we're going to be drawing a lot and talking a lot about his uh, ideas. But some of the earliest uh, depictions of white Jesus in America came about during the early 19th century. Um, and as a case study for this, Bloom is kind of citing um, the evolution of the very start of Mormonism um, and how Joseph Smith recounted his vision of Jesus. Um, so his original vision took place in 1820, um, and Smith then wrote several versions over the next few decades, which evolved from abstract in their, in their uh, description of Jesus yeah as a pillar of light um, to concrete and with specific ethnicity. Um, Bloom quotes Joseph Smith in 1844 explaining to a follower that Jesus had, quote, a light complexion and blue eyes. So let's uh, break down Mormonism for anybody who doesn't know what that is. I can give you like a, an o a broad overview. Yeah. Um, but I actually didn't have time to I, So I know, I know a little. Uh, I've been to Utah. <laughs> um, so uh, Mormonism is a branch of Christianity that was founded, I guess, in the West of the United States. Was um, it founded? I actually. Utah? Hold on, I actually, I'm not actually an expert on Mormon. I'm not Mormonism. either. Um, I just I just knew a couple, um, but yeah. I, I regardless, it was definitely founded in the United States, and they I think that was it. They, it was founded somewhere in the United States, but they were pushed to the West. Mm -hmm. Because um, traditional Mormonism uh, was very um, uh, controversial at the time. They believed in multiple wives. And in the United States, that has always been, I think, an illegal practice. So they were pushed to a territory that hadn't been uh, designated yet for Amer the Americans. So I guess that would have been, yeah, out in, like, Utah. Um, so, yes. Yeah, moving westward with, uh, along with Western expansion... Um, but it is a very distinctly American um, faith. Yeah. And I was actually, I was going to do more research into this, but uh, I, ran, <laughs> I ran out of time a little bit. It's okay. But had to prioritize. But um, essentially, um, Mormonism involves kind of, um, it does involve a vision of Jesus visiting the Americas. Yeah. Um, it's very America-centric. Yeah. It's kind of a distinctly American faith. But Bloom is just kind of using... Um, the evolution of Joseph Smith's vision of Jesus as a case study because mm -hmm. it, it uh, coincides with a point in time in American history when white Jesus imagery was first becoming quite popular yeah. and being distributed at a mass scale. Um, and this was still pretty soon after the birth of America as a nation. Um, 
so there were these questions um, about, you know, who is or is not a citizen of America, mm-hmm. what, how do we want the people of America to be represented, you know, uh, who does or does not have access to certain areas of public life, right? Who's, who's an ideal American citizen? Um, these kinds of questions were really uh, pressing at this time. They were also, as Bloom says, expanding the market economy, um, growing what he calls the Southern Cotton Kingdom, um, and of course pushing the Native Americans to the West. Um, So it coincided at a pretty critical moment. A lot of things, yes. Um, Sorry, the hedgehog was distracting (laughs) me. You're good. But yeah, he was... um, Gradually, images of Jesus became uh, circulated on mass that were very, very uh, Eurocentric and white, um, completely desanitized, um, and the idea of his whiteness was really emphasized. Um, so it's important to note here, I think, and we kind of touched upon this with the evolution of Jesus imagery throughout time, uh, the identity of Jesus is somewhat fungible um, because mm-hmm. Jesus, uh, as a symbol, has not held the same static meaning throughout time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like it, it, he has evolved with mm-hmm. each culture, with each time. With like he's been used to justify wars and oppressing people, and it, it's been it's a good old time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, completely. And that's kind of you can say that about religion in general is that it um, and history as well. Very it's true. being you know as the as contemporary. Uh, readers or worshipers or followers um, viewed these documents from the past, viewed these pe- these stories and people from the past as figures or symbols from the past. They reinvent them in their minds. Yes, definitely. Um, going back to our our like the beginning of our conversation when you asked how I pictured Jesus, like same thing. Like whenever I think of like old cartoons or old Bible stories. Or any anything that has to do fundamentally with Christianity, I think of a Caucasian version of Christ, and I yes, definitely pushing, trying to push against that. Yeah, I mean, it can be religious symbols and religious figures can be invented and reinvented for a variety of uh, reasons, mm-hmm. you know. And I think there's something to be said about like interpreting religious symbols and religious figures on an individual level for a variety of reasons that's kind of but that's kind of not what we're talking about we're talking about like reinventing religious symbols and religious figures for political you know socio-political reasons um by kind of powerful platforms yeah and um so basically i mean a lot of people have covered the evolution of jesus as a symbol in america um in the book jesus in america by richard fox um, he describes him as a person whose identity is, quote, elastic. There is no single Jesus. He can lead crusades like a warrior, and he can turn the other cheek. He can call for fulfilling the law, then for destroying it. He can linger with his mother and tell his disciples to leave their families behind. So he embodies a lot of dualities, and that means yeah. that there are a variety of traits that people can kind of emphasize some and de-emphasize yeah. others mm-hmm. to construct the symbol of Jesus in different ways. But in the very, so like one reason why um, I asked you to help me with this podcast as well as like I wanted to do this was because everything that's happening right now um, in politics, on the news, all of those things, like I don't think that um, 
a lot of Christians realize exactly how their silence is helping fuel that. And by kind of forcing people to look at what's wrong with this religion and why we need to fix it, I'm hoping that we can kind of sway a couple of people's um, ideologies. <laughs> I think it's important to for everybody to critically analyze everything about um, themselves. Yes, to critically <laughs> analyze and reflect upon themselves, upon beliefs that they may take for granted, um, you know, because I think we live in a society. Yeah. <laughs> I would hope we <laughs> like, do. <laughs> we get a number of, of aspects of our personalities and our belief systems from our surrounding context, mm-hmm. and it's important to critically analyze what that means um, and kind of what kind of, you know, what kind of beliefs we're internalizing and yeah. the history behind them and the implications behind them. Um, so basically, oh yeah, should we change that? <laughs> we're working on an audio situation. <laughs> um, and also in the book, um, Alternative Christ, which is um, another book that kind of covers the same subject, um, Olaf Hammer, uh, who's the editor of the book, um, describes religion in general as a quote-unquote toolkit. Um, yeah. which is kind of what we're talking about, a series of tropes and ideas that can be altered and rearranged, some emphasized, others discarded entirely for different ideological purposes. So in the 19th century in America, the interesting thing to me is that we see a number of different Jesuses, actually. Um, so we see the mainstream sort of vision of white Jesus, and then we begin to also witness a number of splintering off um, you know, different interpretations of Jesus by different groups, for different reasons. Um, one of the articles that I read uh, while I was researching the subject was called Jesus's Empire or Empire of Jesus by mm-hmm. Craig Martin, um, where, wherein he quotes Burton Mack, uh, who sees the Bible as, quote, the political authorization for a global empire, essentially making a claim that the narrative of the Bible and the church as an institution is at the root of a quote-unquote Christian mentality that propels American empire. So basically drawing a causal relationship. I like that. From Christianity to American empire. Those are great examples. Well, let me, however, let me problematize that for a second. Um, because Martin's argument, uh, counter to that, is the viewpoint that Jesus historically has been constructed and reconstructed to fit, mm. a, to fit a variety of ideological viewpoints throughout time. So basically, like, American imperialism reconstructs Jesus to fit their... Uh, yeah, purposes. That's true. You yeah, know? So just like anybody else who's using the Bible for to justify this, that, or the other, same thing with founding fathers and every country, every Christian country, every Christian nation. Well, when you kind of, when you, you know, the combination of religion and politics, you see um, the reconstruction of religious symbols and religious figures for distinct political mm-hmm. ends, right? Um, and this I kind of relate uh, mentally to um, American civil religion, but we'll come back to that here in a second. So um, there were a number of counter viewpoints to the white Jesus that was sort of the mainstream vision of the early 19th century. Um, in black communities, yeah. uh, in pre-Civil War America, Jesus was constructed in a completely different way. Um, and yeah. I, But you know, again, we'll get back to that in, in a second in more detail. Um, but I also thought that it was really fascinating to learn that a number of Native Americans saw this irony in the way that white colonizers had constructed an image of the white Jesus meant to represent themselves, mm-hmm. um, saying that white people had quote unquote killed their own God in reference to the crucifixion. 
um, and they noted the contrast between the forgiving and all-loving Jesus of the Bible versus the displacement and violence uh, caused by white colonizers. Yeah. And I think that was, um, was that from the Light to White article? Mm-hmm. Also, it yeah. From, it was uh, the article from Light to White, uh, again by Edward Bloom. Um, he, he quotes um, the Shawnee warrior Tecumseh, um, who he says posed this question to William Henry Harrison. How can we have confidence in the white people when Jesus Christ came upon the earth and killed and nailed them on a cross? He has a point. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, yeah, kind of pointing out that hypocrisy, um, which I think is a great example of emphasizing certain ideas or like reconstructing really an image of Jesus um, to bolster certain political ideas yeah. and then completely disregarding a lot of the other traits and ideas that were so heavily associated with Jesus in the Bible. Um, you know, being an all-loving and accepting figure, right? And I think it's really important to um, note that the Jesus in the Bible, even though he did have at least one violent outburst that I'm I'm remembering where he flipped over tables and stuff, um, he always reacted in a way that was uh, for, um, I guess, like, actually against the oppression of other people. Like, his actions, rather, they were uh, mild or over-the-top. It was always to help someone in a lower uh, position of power. Mm-hmm. And he, I also think it's worth mentioning that this instance of violence as, that you mentioned um, was in the, conste- the context of the money changers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was re- responding that way to the presence of kind of like uh, this commerce, you know, and valuing commerce over... Um, the valuing this commerce over the spiritual um, kind of the spiritual um, place mm-hmm. and also blocking the worship of what was supposed to be an international um, house of God Yeah, that, yeah. Was, that was very uh, offensive to the Jesus of the Bible um, you know so a lot of things from the Bible are getting disregarded basically and this construction of an exclusively white Jesus meant to bolster the societal norm in America of the early 19th century of, you know, Western expansion by way of white supremacy, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, um, I think that it is interesting to talk about kind of some of the ways in which religion has been constructed um, in America in a civil sense the way specifically the concept of American civil religion is um, kind of hard to explain but essentially it's the way that religious ideas and concepts function as part of the American government and cultural landscape so usually um, the concept of American civil religion will show up in um, statements and speeches made by public officials mm-hmm. um, yeah. holidays you know national holidays uh, slogans like in God we trust yep. Um, things like that. So it's not explicitly Christian, though it does draw from Christian ideas and biblical ideas. Uh, Utilizes vaguely Christian concepts like God, prayer, um, certain biblical tropes and stories, but always, it always manifests um, in a way that is explicitly tied to America, tied to American politics, tied to American commerce, um, American colonialism and imperialism. For example, in his second inaugural address, Thomas Jefferson actually directly compared um, American colonizers to a chosen people uh, sent to a promised land Mm -hmm. by divine intervention, and basically characterizing the Western expansion of America um, 
as claiming a promised land. Yeah. You know, I think that's a pretty good example. And also, um, another example is Washington's first inaugural address, um, where he says, "The propitious smiles of heaven, of heaven, excuse me, this this language can never be expected on a nation." that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained that the preservation of the sacred fire of liberty and the destiny of the republican model of government are justly considered perhaps as deeply as finally staked on the experiment entrusted to the hands of the american people i feel like there's a lot to unpack just <laughs> right there mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it's a site where religious expression becomes one with colonialism and imperialism capitalism and commerce american national identity some of the most foundational concepts of American national identity. So I thought it was really interesting because we we had this, uh, we, we kind of did a test run with this yesterday, how you mentioned um, in these speeches, they are very uh, religiously based. Um, they draw a lot from biblical teachings. However, they never specify Christ exactly. It's always God or invisible hand which that's just <laughs> terrifying we could unpack that um, but like specifically jesus is i don't ha- in your research did you ever come across jesus actually being mentioned in a, a speech or any type of politicalized i have not actually mm-hmm. um but jesus of course the image of jesus is very much a part of the cultural landscape mm-hmm. of america he's become kind of a, a cultural symbol um and generally speaking, that is the white Jesus symbol. Yeah. Um, so I think it's kind of, I think it's relevant to talk about American civil religion in that it um, is an analysis of the ways in which religious concepts and ideas become reconstructed to fit American politics and political ideas. And that's like draws a very fine line because uh, I know that there will be a few listeners who are outside um, the states. And then there might be a few that are like, oh, but there is a separation between church and state. Like, there is, but (laughs) Mm -hmm. there are ways to, I guess, bend those rules and get around that. And this would be one of them. And I think, like, I was reading an article today, um, I think from the New York Times, um, that was comparing actually the same thing with, like, um, American civil religion and how uh, Trump has been using his speeches to, um, I guess, kind of draw attention to the church uh, or, or trying trying to, in a positive way, I think is what he thinks, but it's really not helping the church at all. Any of them. <laughs> like, none of them. It's not helping any church. It's not helping the Catholic. It's Catholics. It's not helping the Catholics. It's not helping the Episcopalians. It's de- like, I think the Episcopalians. You know how... You do you know how bad you've had to mess up to piss off the Episcopalians? <laughs> they are actually very mad at him right now. Oh, really? You remember that whole photo op in front of the church? Mm-hmm. That was an Episcopalian church, and he oh. did, they did not clear that with the the rector. Oh, and he's and they're oh, they, they're, we're all mad. <laughs> <laughs> we're still mad. Episcopalians are pretty chill. They like they they are like they are the. The chillest. Like, think Catholics, but, like, hippie Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> so that was basically, like, the context behind white Jesus imagery of the early 19th century. And then continuing on with our analysis of white Jesus specifically, we can talk about Jesus constructed by the Klan. 
um, oh, how yeah. the plan can start to change us. <laughs> and this actually, we didn't have a chance to go through this during our run through yesterday because I hadn't, I hadn't done this research yet. This research is brand new. But basically, um, so the Ku Klux, the Ku Klux Klan, for anybody that doesn't know, um, is a violent, like white supremacist militia yep. uh, that was founded during the aftermath of the Civil War. Uh, actually, it was founded right here in Tennessee. Really? Yeah, yeah, it was. Really? Yeah. Don't worry, I have okay. I have like a counterfact later that count that casts Tennesseans in a better light, okay. kind of. But yes, it was started right here in Tennessee. I think I've actually heard that, but like <laughs> it was, I didn't yeah. need to remember that. <laughs> well, the founder Nathan Bedford Forrest, there was a statue of him in the in Nashville, in like the Nashville. Um, it's not there now, right? They just now. Really? They out, just yeah, now? Just okay. now. Okay. <laughs> Um, so the, the Klan held like a specific doctrine of belief in Jesus, though. They held like a specific, they had a specific construction of Jesus, um, which they circulated widely through the Nighthawk, which was their newspaper. Um, so based upon the analysis of Kelly J. Baker in the book Gospel According to the Klan, here are some of the foundational ideas that the Klan associated with Jesus. And this is really fascinating because basically this is a demonstration of that toolkit that I mentioned. Um, and that toolkit that I mentioned um, and kind of the way that people for certain political aims can, um, you know, emphasize certain ideas while de-emphasizing others or even bend um, the religious text um, qu quite significantly mm -hmm. to serve their own purposes. So number one, um, something that they really emphasized about Jesus I'm not going to edit the sound of the hedgehog out. We're just going <laughs> to, if you hear any weird background noises, I have a pet hedgehog named Thistle, and she has been running on her wheel, and now she's drinking some water. We're just going nuts under quarantine. <laughs> We're all going nuts, including the pet. That's the funniest thing to me. Just This has nothing to do with Jesus whatsoever, but that's the funniest thing about quarantine to me is that the pets are going like the pets absolutely are wild, annoyed. but they're always here anyway, so they're just responding to like our increased presence. They're like, what are you doing here? I think, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like, and I just it. think it's interesting because, like, I, I said as soon as you got here, I was like, oh, yeah, the hedgehog's here, but she's nocturnal. It's daytime. She won't do anything. <laughs> no, she's she's just going crazy and wild. She has strong opinions to share on this. But um, so basically one idea that the Klan um, really emphasized was the death of Jesus. Um, it presented a narrative of a Basically, the Klan was kind of casting itself in their propaganda materials as the underdog. They were casting themselves as an underdog um, fighting for a cause, standing up for a cause, who had been repressed by the institution of a new social order mm -hmm. that was um, that was against their way of life. So they were positioning themselves as the underdog. They were positioning themselves in, indeed as oppressed. And this should ring a bell uh, when we look at some modern political situations. But anyway, um, so the death of Jesus, the suffering and sacrifice and death of Jesus, the Klan related that um, to a narrative of itself, quote, standing up for their beliefs or fighting for their beliefs. Um, and they likened that to the, to the death of Jesus. Um, they characterized Jesus as explicitly a Protestant, which is that's interesting. Like, yeah, um, that's completely backwards. Like which is number one because the Klan was very overtly anti-Catholic, um, yeah. and so they identified Jesus as a Protestant, but also they used the term Protestant as in protest. They saw Jesus as, quote, dissenting from the regnant form of order, end quote, and presented the Klan itself as, again, as underdogs in a fight against the dominant social order. 
Um, See, I just, I, I don't understand how... That's actually not the first time I've heard that. Um, I think I watched a documentary on this, like, years ago. Um, but I don't understand that, because Jesus was very much Jewish. Yeah, I mean, it just goes to show, again, like, they're completely reconstructing an entirely um, self-serving version of Jesus that does not draw from uh, biblical... He went to temple. He read the Torah. Yeah, it doesn't... He probably spoke Hebrew. Yeah, it doesn't draw from uh, biblical evidence or biblical ideas um, in some pretty important regards, you know? Um, But... They also said that Jesus himself was a clansman. This oh, is interesting. Um, because they cast Jesus' group of disciples as the creation of a quote-unquote Christian clan. Um, and this is a really intriguing uh, instance of like circular logic. But to get around the fact that this was like um, a diverse group, his disciples were a diverse group, uh-huh. they were like, well, it wasn't respective of, of uh, racial lines or ethnic lines or kinship ties, but it was... It was all about good moral fiber, but they still like likened this to their own clan, um, which is just so backwards. I mean, all of this is backwards and insidious, but you know. <laughs> and then. I'm gonna have brown lines for this podcast. <laughs> um, again, sacrifice. Um, they really lauded Jesus' selflessness and humility. Um, likening it to the expectation of clan members to sacrifice themselves for the clan's cause of white supremacy. How? How do you take Jesus? This, like, what do you think of when you think of Jesus? Forgiveness, probably. Forgiveness. Um, um, Acceptance. Acceptance. uh, Love. Love. I think that's, like, the love. How are you going to take those things that are so pure about Jesus and go, yeah, this this applies to the Ku Klux Klan. I should have warned you before I got into this. Fine, go ahead. <laughs> um, and then uh, Protestant unity, and we'll come back to this in a minute because this is a really intriguing one. Um, Protestant unity. The Klan sought to reunite white American Christians from the North and the South. Protestants, specifically. Uh, Baker summarizes, quote, due to the Civil War, Protestants tore the body of Christ by maintaining Northern and Southern convocations in their same sect. The Nighthawk envisioned the Klan as the force to mend divisions of the country as well as among denominations. So this this unity of white Protestant denominations from interdenominational conflict and from post Civil War North versus South regional conflict was this was important to like the fact that the reconstruction of the South never really happened so as deeply as it should. Let have. me let me let me get this straight. The KKK thought that they could somehow overcome the many differences. Of each denomin that each denomination has with each other and bring them together under racism under racism yeah do you realize that the catholic church has been trying to figure out how to do that for like thousand no no when when did martin luther do the thing um uh, that was hundreds of years <laughs> hundreds of years ago for hundreds of years and like and everybody's actually like, trying like seriously 500. seriously we are we live in the bible belt right you were Methodist? Mm-hmm. Okay, I was Catholic. Have you ever... We actually... Like, my parish was actually right next door, door to an Episcopal church, right? Like, we actually, like, tried to fight with each other. 
like, like, like some of the youth group would go fight, like some of the youth boys would go fight the the, the Episcopal boys, and then like we'd have soccer matches, and we'd we'd like I think one kid spiked some kid's drink once. It was it was bad. Like we <laughs> that escalated. We didn't like each other, and most denominations don't like each other. Like sometimes they'll you'll see it come them come together for like a good cause, like help the homeless or feed the needy, but like working with each other on a regular basis that doesn't happen because baptists are completely different from catholics it doesn't happen and it i I wish i wish there would be more unity but it probably never will happen everybody's got an opinion it's you know everybody's got an opinion okay um i love that story though about the kids fighting each other from different denominations it's kind of like how kids um are always like you know my dad would beat up your dad except it's like my jesus would beat up your jesus i okay story time um so i was raised catholic but my aunt was baptist and there was like this one wednesday that she had she babysat oh yeah she babysat me and we had to go to church because for some reason baptists like to go to church on wednesday afternoons there was this kid there Oh, wait, I think I've told you a different one. I beat oh. up this kid. Did okay. I tell you this yeah, one? Yeah, no. Okay. <laughs> there was this kid there that decided that because I was Catholic, she needed to make fun of me. And they, she she did make fun of me quite a lot. Um, this was just like one night. And finally, I, um, I punched her in the nose. <laughs> I got mad and I punched her in the nose. All in a Christian way, of course. Yeah, with love. <laughs> The other story was like, yeah, the uh, as a very confused Catholic child, I asked a Baptist pastor where the statue of Mary was, because growing up Catholic, we had a statue of Mary in our parish, and there's like this mis this common stereotype that Catholics pray to Mary and we or worship Mary. We we don't do that, or I say we. I'm not Catholic anymore. They don't do that. <laughs> You can take um, the person out of yeah, the Catholic church. Yeah, you really can't take can. the Catholic out of the person. Like, it does, <laughs> doesn't matter. Um, but, like, the pastor, like, told me I was basically going to hell for doing that. And then that's when my aunt, like, stepped in. Like, I thought she was going to beat that guy up. <laughs> Again, all in a very loving, you know, Christian, Christian manner, manner yes. yes. So after we, um, after we see the clan kind of constructing a new version of Jesus, um... Then we see the figure of Dwight Lyman Moody. Uh, okay. He was born in 1837, uh, originally a shoe salesman. Love that. Became an enthusiastic Christian under the influence of a number of prominent Protestant religious leaders, including Edward M. Kirk and J.B. Stilson. Um, he was raised in a Unitarian environment. Um, he became a non-denominational or pan-denominational pastor. Okay. Um, he built a whole career and public persona around the idea of being a reconciliator. Um, during the Civil War, he was a member of the Civil War Christian Commission and developed a reputation for um, basically uniting um, a variety of Protestants of a variety of beliefs and backgrounds. Um, he attended um, revival meetings in England uh, during the 1870s in order to help unite Anglicans and quote-unquote dissenters. Um, and again, for a lot of this information, I'm citing and reading um, Bloom's article, Gilded Crosses. Um, one of his biggest areas of focus was the unity of different American Protestant sects. Um, so immediately after the Civil War, tensions between Northern and Southern whites remained intense. Um, so the Missouri Christian Convention held um, an annual meeting 
and so they held one of their annual meetings in St. Louis, and the delegates, recognizing a vested interest in united in uniting northern and southern white Christians, decided to nominate Moody as their presiding officer for that very reason. Um, so then in the 1860s and 1870s, uh, we also need to talk about how immediately after the Civil War, northern whites began to pretty quickly lose interest in reforming the racist oppression in the South. Um, originally, northern Republicans had been very enthusiastic about reconstructing the South, mm-hmm. helping black people, yeah. um, and then that interest began to wane. Um, and they, I mean, I think part of it was fatigue. Yeah, we call um, that protesters fatigue? Yeah, or activism, activism fatigue. fatigue. Um, yeah, and again, we could talk about that now, too, but yeah. they were experiencing a lot of activism fatigue, and I think that infighting amongst themselves over how exactly they thought would be best to reconstruct the South also delayed things. I mean, of course, you can talk about the assassination of Lincoln. Mm-hmm. You could talk about how a number of Republic, like prominent Republicans accumulated a lot of wealth after the war yeah. and then became swiftly more concerned with protecting and maintaining their wealth than they were with yeah. social issues. There were a variety of reasons. The point is they lost the wind was out of their sails yeah. for the, the social issue at hand, the ra- granted, like counteracting racism. You get, granted that the Southerners, uh, us, we have never been an easy people to um, deal with. <laughs> yeah, no, um, I'll give them that. But So basically, um, but there was a point in time, like immediately after the war, where the South um, was laid pretty low, and oh, they yeah, could have they could have done some extensive reconstruction of but they, it didn't happen for a variety of reasons. So um, as their interest in uh, racial justice waned, their interest in reuniting white people from the North and the South mm-hmm. kind of um, became more prominent. Yeah. Um, and America was at this time also pretty much in the midst of a national identity crisis. The country had split into two nations, okay. the North, the yeah. Confederacy versus the Union, um, two complete two regional areas with people of completely different beliefs, completely different lifestyles, violently in conflict with one another. Um, and now they had to kind of reckon with how to reform a singular national identity again without their iconic president, without Lincoln. Um, so, you know, this American nationalism was kind of being reformed at this mm-hmm. point in time, uh, a national sense of self. So Moody was wildly popular and influential. Um, he preached to audiences of millions, um, as Bloom says, often three times a day, and including such prestigious guests as President Ulysses S. Grant and John oh, D. Wow. Rockefeller. Yeah, wow. he was kind of a big deal. A big deal. <laughs> the Cleveland leader described his tours like this. Uh, the United States is now in the midst of the throes of the third of its great religious awakenings. Third? Okay. We, yeah. I can't unpack that for you at this point in time. But basically there was like... (laughs) I'm just trying to figure out what the other two were. (laughs) Well, but basically it's... um, They were saying that this was a a big wave. Yeah. This was a huge cultural wave. Okay. Of religious fervor under the ideas of this guy. And and some other prominent religious figures as well, but we're focusing on this guy for a specific reason. Um, So here's some of the tenets of his preaching. He cast himself as apolitical, claiming that the events of American politics were inconsequential in the eyes of God, and heavily in, like heavily criticizing um, the involvement of Christians in what he considered to be secular affairs. Um, he focused on the so-called gospel of reconciliation, uh, quote, setting out to destroy the barrier separating man from man, again from Bloom, uh, by preaching about against conflict between Protestant denominations and encouraging unity between them, but also by preaching against regional division between North and South. Um, he often spoke with great affection and respect to the South. 
which appealed not only to the Northerners wishing for regional reconciliation, but also the Southerners. Um, Albert Taylor Bledsoe um, founded, and he was the editor of the Southern Review, um, and he was a pretty tireless critic of the North, um, and even he commended Moody's sermons. He said they were, quote, the most wonderful phenomenon of the 19th century. Um, Moody compared the chronology of the Civil War to the chronology of the biblical flood. He traced the Ark of Humanity's rejection of, of God's mm. grace, of the Ark, wow. um, the punishment of the flood, and Noah and his family's safe exit from the Ark, which ushered in an era of peace. Basically, um, to construct this idea that after having been, and I quote, baptized in blood by the war, um, it could be, there could be a, an era of peace. So here's, here's the problem with that, though. Um, comparisons like this encourage northern white Christians to forget Reconstruction and assimilate to an idea of post-war peace um, that overlooked and glossed over the still horrific treatment of black people in the South. Basically, this brand of unity inherently silenced the real violence and trauma experienced by black people, um, and thus black people were excluded from this vision of unity. Yeah. You know, they basically, it was basically like, you know, you should just get over it and uh, <laughs> and unify. Which, if you think about it, is something white people have been telling black people to do since... <laughs> a long time. Yeah. It's like, been a while. Is... Oh, man. I think it's interesting also to note that Moody did not engage in a lot of super in-depth biblical study or analysis. His biblical references... That doesn't surprise me, actually. No. <laughs> uh, like, okay, I don't know about... Um, about Methodist, but like, you know, in the Catholic Church, you have to go to school <laughs> for a long time to be a, to be a priest. Like my certification in Bible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but like, like, uh, I think, um, I think like Catholic priests, they have to like be, they have to be well-versed in philosophy, in theology, in biblical doctrine, in Latin. They still have to be able to read and speak and write in Latin. Um, I think up until what, uh, Pope, is it Ratzinger? I can't, I don't remember his Pope, Pope name. Benedict. Benedict. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, Nobody's going to know who Ratzinger is. <laughs> Ratzinger. Uh, I couldn't remember his, his Pope name. Benedict. I think up until that point, he was still, like, speaking to his cardinals in Latin. Um, so, like, Catholic priests are extremely well-educated. Mm-hmm. I have met some Baptists. Like, well, not just Baptists. I'm not just going to, I'm not going to knock for the Baptists. Uh, I've had some bad Baptist experiences, you know this. To, like, other pastors of um, other denominations that might have went to school for, like, maybe two or three years. Maybe. Um, Or I've definitely met some pastors that have not went to school at all. For, and I'm like, you know, you, have you ever done any academic research of the Bible? Have you ever, like, looked at the Hebrew or the Greek or, or the Latin? Have you ever, like, what about, like, theology? Like, help me here because, like, you can't... I don't believe in taking a religious text word for word. I never have and I probably never will because it's not meant to be taken literally. The Bible definitely isn't meant to be taken literally. I, I would agree that the Bible isn't meant to be taken literally. I will say this, like, um, I think, you know, across different denominations, you have good and bad. You yeah, know, of course. You have, you have people um, who, you know, whose ideas are totally off base, whose ideas are reprehensible, who don't know what they're talking about, who, um, 
you know, disregard biblical analysis in mm -hmm. favor of self-serving ends. Um, and then you have people who are very serious about their biblical um, analysis. I've, you know, I've had uh, both good and bad uh, Protestant pastors. I've had Protestant pastors who really analyzed biblical material and really mm -hmm. thought about it and really um, have formulated some insight. Uh, and I've had Protestant pastors who did not do that. You know? Yes, I, um, and I, I will clarify. I have met some very, very well-versed Protestant pastors. Um, like I, my dad, I think my dad still watches Jesse Duplantis on TV, like some televised preacher. And he, like, we got the chance to, like, we kind of know him because we're oh, really? from New Orleans. Well, we're not from New Orleans. But <laughs> my family, some of my family's from New Orleans, and we know him by association. And like, yes, he is a very educated pastor. Um, like there was a pastor that I knew years ago that was my grandmother's pastor and she was Church of God. He was extremely knowledgeable, but then there have been a few. Yeah, yeah, and I think that holds him. true. Yeah, that, that, and that holds true anywhere you go. You exactly. Know? Anywhere you go, you have um, good and bad. But um, Moody as a figure did not engage in a lot of in-depth biblical study. Again, his uh, biblical ideas were very much uh, and very overtly linked to his kind of vision for the culture mm -hmm. of the country. And it's ironic because he did cast himself as an apolitical person. He, he talked about uh, rejecting politics and rejecting secular matters. And yet, really, upon close analysis of a lot of his sermons, his religious ideas were in service of this vision of quote-unquote unity among northern and southern white Americans. Um, which is political. Yeah, that, that, so, you know, that is definitely a very political Yeah, So it's a little, yeah. it's kind of giving you the okey-doke. Definitely. Kind of giving you the runaround a little bit. So picking up where we left off about um, Moody, um, Dwight Moody, he also directly platformed and exalted some racist uh, pastors. He invited the minister William Plumer from South Carolina to act as a co-pastor in a number of his sermons. Uh, Plumer was a steadfast believer in slavery. He attempted to justify it biblically and morally, and even uh, cast it as a formative American value. He said basically, should the assembly legislate and decide that slaveholding is a sin, then nothing is left but to rend the star-spangled banner in twain. Jeez. Moody platformed and exalted Plumer, welcoming him to the sermon amidst thunderous applause and bringing him to speak on the same message of unity that Moody himself deployed so often. And then while touring in the South, specifically an incident in Augusta, Georgia, uh, Southern whites were so offended by the presence of black people that they put up a fence to segregate them. Though Moody, quote, expressed faint disapproval over the separation to one of the local pastors, again from June, um, he, the local pastor then said, I'm proud of my rebellious feelings and will rebel until the day I die. Moody prioritized the racism of Southern white Christians over the equality of black people, and thus his Southern events continued to be segregated. Um, so for spreading this ideology that erased, glossed over, or tacitly endorsed uh, the continuation of white supremacy, Moody was heavily criticized by many black contemporaries, including Frederick Douglass, who said this, of all the forms of, um, basically, of racism, of anti-blackness, um, he used a word that I don't feel comfortable using, um, but he says, save me from that one which clothes itself with the name of the loving Jesus. Um, then he says, black people can go into the circus, the theater, and can be admitted to the lectures of Mr. Ingersoll, but cannot go into an evangelical Christian meeting. Um, so just very, 
very firmly criticizing um, the specific brand of Christianity that used uh, Jesus as a, an excuse and a pretext mm -hmm. to disguise um, this sort of insidious exclusivity of black people. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a whole lot. Yeah. And this might be a good, a good point to segue into black American Christianity, but what, what are your thoughts on that? Besides, like, you know, I don't really, I don't really know what all to think about it because, like, it's so contradictory, I guess, in itself, but also, like, the North and the South, and there's, there's just a lot to unpack right there because, I don't know, like, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> the whole, I don't know, it's like, his name's Moody. Mm -hmm. the, the, White Moody, yeah. The, the white pastor. Uh, the pastor. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, like, and his his goal was to unify. Well, basically, his, his goal was to unify white and white northern and southern Protestant Christians. Okay, so yeah, it's just like the other the the minority Christians just got kicked out of that group. Basically, yeah. That's, yeah, because he basically said. Um, you know, black people at that time were experiencing violence, segregation, attacks, um, hostility, trauma, and they were having these very real problems. But he was basically glossing over that by saying, you know, this is an era of peace. This is an era of unity, right? This message that seems, that seems acceptable and positive to everyone at first on the very surface level, but silences the trauma. It's so contradictory of mm -hmm. what he was trying to... All right. Yeah. That's fun. So black American Christianity is kind of a fascinating counterpoint to this development of white Jesus as a symbol oh, yeah. um, within the 19th century. And it originated um, at some point during the 19th century, though the exact time and reason are debated. Okay. Um, a large number of black people in America um, converted to Protestant Christianity, embraced Protestant Christianity. Uh, though not unilaterally, I should say. Many black people were practitioners of other faiths, including Islam. Um, but black Christians had a variety of conceptions about Jesus that differed from the mainstream white conception of Jesus in some pretty important ways. Um, so here are some major ideas there. Jesus as a figure um, who endured suffering that mirrored the suffering of enslaved mm -hmm. black people. Oh, yeah. uh, Bloom quotes a spiritual song uh, written by a black person uh, that says, poor little Jesus boy made him to be born in a manger. World treated him so mean, treats me mean too. And um, so they really kind of emphasize that idea of unjustified suffering, of unfair yeah. treatment, um, as well as Jesus as a divine counterpower to white supremacist slave owners, um, a person, a presence who disapproved of enslavement. Um, and as a symbol for black Christians, he redirected power away from white slave owners mm -hmm. um, and a focus on Jesus as king and as an ultimate judge of humanity, um, which contradicted the American legal system as a moral arbiter, uh, which upheld the law of slavery. It's interesting to think how these two groups of people were able to um, see this, I mean, starting at the same starting point of character of Jesus and reinterpreting two different his characters because mm -hmm. I don't want to say th these are two different Jesuses because like, <laughs> <laughs> there's quote-unquote only one Jesus and like but these are two these versions. are two 
Yes, two versions of like two very different entities. Yeah. Um, he was interestingly enough, he was visualized as a as a white like Caucasian man by by yeah. Christians at this time, but he was also visualized as physically diminutive, physically small, which yeah. emphasized his humility. Yeah, that was in one of the articles that we read, um, mm-hmm. which maybe maybe you can help me exp- uh, understand um, why he was always visualized so small again. Well, my impression from what we read was that he was visualized as a small um, man because uh, it was meant to underline his humility um, to underline his unassuming uh, nature, okay. his his um, you know purity in a way he was not this sort of domineering uh, figure. Okay, I think that's kind of what I got from it. Um, one anecdote that really stuck with me in the course of my reading for this was about uh, Marie Griffith Brown, who was enslaved at birth, um, and she experienced a vision of Jesus during a traumatic incident where she was uh, beaten uh, on the head by her uh, slave owner. And she um, experienced this vision of Jesus during which she traveled away from her physical location. And she described it like this. She said, I stood in the lonely garden of Gethsemane. I saw the darkness and gloom that overshadowed the earth when deserted by his disciples, our blessed Lord prayed alone. And she basically um, had this vision of staying with Jesus um, during his uh, persecution, his prayer, his death, his uh, crucifixion, his rebirth, um, staying with him and identifying with that uh, suffering, with that persecution. Um, and this vision, also it's interesting to note, brought her this kind of liberated movement, this mm-hmm. kind of divine movement from place to place, which instead of being the mobility of being like taken from you know, from place to place by a white uh, slaver without consent. Um, it was kind of a movement with agency. It became a, a free movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if, and eventually she did escape uh, slavery. So this was kind of connected to that uh, for her. So Jesus, for a lot of black Christians in the 19th century, was a revolutionary, um, you know, abolition uh, Jesus. Um, Anthony Burns, a formerly enslaved man, uh, quote, reported to the New York Tribune that as a young man he learned that there is a Christ who came to make us free. Um, and then, of course, there was Nat Turner, a um, yeah. famous figure who led an anti-slavery militia in Southampton, Southampton County, Virginia. Um, and he gave an interview. He, his uh, band of uh, revolutionaries killed like 60 white people, and uh, then he was imprisoned. And while he was in prison, he gave an interview with the attorney, Thomas Gray, uh, during which he claimed direct divine inspiration. Um, and I'm actually gonna bring up a, a quote from the article, uh, again, by uh, Bloom that I'm reading here. Um, so he says, I just completely lost my place in this article. <laughs> uh, let's see. He told Gray that the Spirit spoke to him, and the Spirit's words were from the biblical Christ. Seek ye the kingdom of heaven, and all things shall be added unto you. When Turner saw drops of blood in a cornfield, he knew that Jesus had made the call for rebellion. 
because the blood of Christ had been shed on this earth and had ascended to heaven for the salvation of sinners, it was now returning to earth again in the form of dew. To Turner, it was clear the great day of judgment was at hand. After hearing Turner's claim to be an instrument of God, Gray asked him, Do you find yourselves mistaken now? Turner's answer was short and to the point. Was not Christ crucified? So basically, um, he was pretty directly claiming Jesus as a divine inspiration mm -hmm. for his rebellion against uh, slavery, against white supremacy. Um, and then we move into black Christianity post-Civil War. Um, and after the Civil War, the important one of the important things to remember here is that black people were now allowed to, like formerly enslaved black people, were now allowed to express robust intellectualism and debate uh, openly, which they hadn't been able, like yeah. hadn't been allowed to do before. Um, so Christianity became a major site of that expression, uh, including a number of opposing viewpoints from prominent uh, black theological figures and, you know, writers and intellectuals. Uh, like Booker T. Washington, mm -hmm. uh, head of the Tuskegee Institute of Alabama, developed a vision of Jesus and Christianity um, that kind of, one of his aims was redirecting the focus of black Christianity away from the metaphysical and towards the material. Yeah. Um, so he... Yeah had this belief um, as like in monetary gain in the accumulation of wealth and ownership as a way for black Americans to establish stability and power within a segregated white supremacist society. So it was a lot like working with Christianity from the inside of, of the, the system, system that mm -hmm. was already created. He related spirituality to monetary gain and land ownership, drawing a causal relationship between the accumulation of wealth and increased faith in Jesus. Um, so basically, his claim was that the harder you work, the more you earn, the more money and land you have, the more uh, you will be in touch with Jesus. See, which, I mean, I don't know, is that what you were taught in, in church? <laughs> no. It was like the exact opposite of what we were taught, um, because like, like with the... The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Um, richer is the poor, or I can't remember all the scripture right now. But, like, the poor people are closer to God because they have less of those material constraints. Um, so that's just, I don't know, that's an interesting mm -hmm. concept. Yeah, it is. And, again, it's, it's a construction of Jesus that is occurring in tandem with a specific um, you know, with a specific idea, with a specific mm -hmm. sort of socio-political idea. Um, and he also, just as a note, um, he constructed Jesus as a law abider, speaking of kind of the idea of working within a system. Okay. Uh, he said, let me leave you this thought. If we would live happily, live honored and useful lives modeled after that of our perfect leader Christ, we must conform to law. He encouraged sexual purity, which may have also been a response to false accusations against black men of raping white women, mm -hmm. which was a, a huge yeah. deal at that time and a big, uh, something that people constructed and fraudulently to try to justify lynchings and yeah. hate crimes and, you know. Um, but he had a number of critics. Uh, Washington had a number of critics of his theology, including uh, Carter Woodson, who criticized Washington's connection between Jesus and, quote, material greed in white American culture as well as the quote-unquote surrender of the Northern Church to the capitalist uh, system. So he was also, there, there's a pretty rich tradition, by the way, of uh, black intellectuals um, criticizing and critiquing and analyzing the economics, the uh, financial structure of America as well, and the way that it's oh, connected yeah, to white supremacy. 
um, W.E.B. Dubois was one of his loudest <laughs> critics. Um, he heavily criticized Washington theology, calling it, quote, a gospel of work and money. Um, and Dubois also described Jesus as a, quote, unquote, dark and fierce Jew who opposed the love of money. So, you know, we're, see- we're beginning to see a construction of Jesus physically mm-hmm. as non-white in conjunction with um, black Americans, black Christians, um, theology in conjunction with resistance against white supremacy. Um, and then we begin to see visual representations of Jesus as black. Um, and right. what, what style year would this, would this have been? Oh, I was going to loop back to oh, that. Oh, okay. You're, no, you're fine. <laughs> uh, Reverend Henry McNeil Turner of the African Methodist Episcopal Church condemned the idea of a white Jesus, quote, declaring that African Americans had every right to believe that God is black and that if Jesus were white, Christianity should be deserted by black people. Basically, he made this, this claim. Um, he said, and I quote, we had rather be an atheist and believe in no God or a pantheist and believe that all nature is God than believe that Jesus, while in the flesh, was a white man. And F.S. Cherry, a pastor in Philadelphia in the 1930s, would walk into churches and openly call out depictions of white Jesus as a, as a lie. He said, I'll give anybody $1,000 tomorrow night who can tell me who the hell that is while pointing to visual depictions of Jesus as a white man. Um, so these are just, and there were a number of others. These are just a couple of examples. I kind of want to do that now. Maybe you should walk <laughs> into my old parish and just say, who the hell is that guy? <laughs> he would be escorted out of the, <laughs> out of the parish. Um, but yeah, uh, where was I? So there was a, an art show sponsored by the NAACP um, in 1935 that dealt, because now we're moving into the early 20th century, yeah. uh, that dealt with the issue of lynching at the Arthur U. Newton galleries in New York City, including the work of Prentice Taylor, Julius Block, Fred Buchholz, and many other artists. And many of the featured works used Christ imagery yeah. um, in direct conjunction with the suffering of black men during this kind of rash of lynchings. Um, this is, I've pulled a piece um, by Prentice Taylor called Christ in Alabama, um, which is a, a really lovely um, and moving drawing mm-hmm. um, of a, a black man in a stark silhouette being uh, crucified and some uh, depictions of cotton in the background, mm-hmm. kind of referencing the legacy of slavery. Um, and then this is a painting by uh, Julius uh, Bloke called He's German. I don't know how to pronounce his name. I'm sure that I'm, I'm sure that I'm butchering it. Um, but this painting is called Lynching, and this is a a painting of a black man being uh, tied to a tree by a white mob. But he is in the crucifixion pose of it is quite graphic. But he's in uh, the crucifixion pose of Jesus, um, eyes sort of cast heavenward. Um, again, drawing a direct connection to the persecution of Jesus. And um, I've also pulled. Uh, Henry Osawa Tanner's painting, Christ and Nicodemus on a Rooftop, uh, which he painted during the 1920s, um, so that was a little bit before. And this is this is my favorite work that you've pulled, and I mm-hmm. think a lot of the reason um, why I like it so much is, you mentioned the, the lighting and the, and the use of shade and color and contrast, and I, I love that as well, but also because I feel like this is probably the most accurate depiction of Jesus I have seen ever <laughs> um, and where is it at the Smithsonian 
Well, um, I actually pulled some information on this piece from the Smithsonian American Art Museum uh, website. They they have at least one of the studies for okay. this. Um, I'm actually not sure right off the top of my head where the where the final piece resides, but um, according to the Smithsonian, uh, Tanner drew upon specifically black worship traditions that he remembered from his youth. Freed black people, quote, continued to meet at night as they had done when their masters had forbidden them to read the Bible, end quote. Okay. So this kind of clandestine uh, spiritual meeting yeah. that he's drawing upon. But yeah, I think it's an absolutely uh, beautiful piece. Even the, the costume is historically accurate. I mean, mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to bring that up because I think this is really important. You see the, the absence of that classical mm -hmm. toga outfit yeah. that tends to be connected with white Jesus depictions, um, really going all the way back to the Renaissance era and before, uh, you know, the Middle Ages. Um, but now in this work, you see a removal of that. These are, um, you know, these are Jewish historical garments, right? Yeah. And the, the setting is clearly um, the Middle East, mm -hmm. the architecture of the buildings and the kind of, you know, landscape is clearly the Middle East. Um, there are no classical columns, mm -mm, yeah. you know. It's very, yes, this is like definitely my favorite piece that you found, and now I'm like completely blanking on who Nicodemus was, though. <laughs> That's okay, we're not talking about him. <laughs> I know, podcast. but this I'm going to be like Nicodemus. sitting here wondering about it. <laughs> He's from the Bible. <laughs> but, uh, okay, so I talked about American civil religion, um, but speaking about art, there are some interesting um, examples of American civil religion, the combination or co-occurrence of religious symbology with American government, American cultural identity, um, through artistic landscape, mm -hmm. like artistic landmarks in America as well, including the Lincoln Memorial. Um, and I'm going to pull an image of that really fast because I wasn't smart enough to do that last night. So the Lincoln Memorial basically is a giant statue of Lincoln inside of what is pretty directly a classical um, temple style. Yeah, mm -hmm. You know, it's funny. We talked about this yesterday, and I never connected that ever, like, until you mentioned it. I was like, oh, yeah, that is. It's kind of, yeah, and for me, too, it was something that I had to be told or had to figure out from somebody else first because, um, you know, at first glance, you just look at this and you're like, Okay, because it's a part of the American cultural landscape, you don't really question yeah, it, right? Yeah, exactly. But yeah, it's pretty directly a classical Greek temple. With there's the columns, there's the um, statue itself is like, like I think you mentioned it yesterday that it would it definitely depicts what looked like could have been um, how a Zeus a statue of Zeus would have been depicted for the ancient Greeks. It is very much the, the colossal statue of Lincoln. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's sitting in a in a very authoritative chair, a very authoritative throne. Um, is much his like, foot also extended? Mm -hmm. And he yeah. has he has one foot extended, which is kind of um, a facet of a lot of um, imperial and royal mm -hmm. portraiture, going not just back to classical society, but all the way back to Egypt. Egyptian, mm -hmm. Egyptian, Egyptian pharaonic yeah. portraiture, yeah. Um, but he's sitting in this big throne, uh, much like a colossal statue of Zeus would have been in a, a classical Greek temple to Zeus. Um, 
mm-hmm. and that's kind of because a lot of Ameri- the American cultural landscape and visual culture stems from neoclassicism, mm-hmm. which for anybody yeah. that doesn't know, neoclassicism was kind of a broad movement, aesthetic movement in the 18th and 19th centuries mm-hmm. based around kind of going back to classical Greek and Roman um, aesthetic forms as in the Western, this was occurring in the Western world and in colonies, like established mm-hmm. colonies um, across the globe, basically as a way of claiming the power and prestige of classical society, but also it was about kind of establishing this lineage, this mm-hmm. Western lineage. And like, it's not just, you know, national monuments, most, um, at least, at least I'm speaking from experience as far as like Nashville, Chattanooga, even my hometown, Marion County. <laughs> um, like we there's even like um elements of neoclassicism in the architecture for like courthouses for uh any like government buildings you it's not just a big grand scale thing it's like really swept the entire landscape of the of the country mm-hmm. um yeah and another uh kind of um instance of American civil religion and visual culture that draws from classical forms is the apotheosis of oh, Washington no. <laughs> which is a fresco oh, um, no. painted by Constantino Brunidi in 1865 and it's in the United States Capitol building um, it's uh, a painting of Washington sitting in, sitting in the clouds amongst this kind of chorus of angels and the apotheosis is basically a form that goes back to classical society that is portraying, um, historically speaking, it is portraying an ascent to godhood, an ascent to a higher plane yeah. of existence. Like, you see this a lot, and this is like, um, still, I guess it even looks controversial to me, like, because like if you go to any uh, big Catholic or any, any big church, honestly, um, sometimes you see that. You, you see that, like, especially in, in Europe and Italy, like, you see the, 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 the all the ceilings are painted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and speaking of George, our pal George Washington, we also have the, uh, the famous shirtless, oh. sexy Washington. Sexy um, Washington. <laughs> uh, a statue of Washington by uh, Horatio Greeno, which I love saying that name out loud because it sounds like the Star Wars character. Yeah, um, but it's basically Washington again sitting in a th- on a throne. It's a huge statue made of marble. He's sitting on a throne. He has one foot extended. He is positioned in a very deliberate way. One, his left hand extended outwards with a sword. His right hand pointing up heavenward. Um, that that's that's also seen in other um, like Renaissance works like um, Raphael's uh, the philosophy. Philo- mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. The it's in the Vatican. And also the careful positioning of the hands rem- reminds me, at least aesthetically, of a number of Christian icons, mm-hmm. Byzantine icons. Yeah. Um, I think it's important to also note that this statue um, was extremely controversial. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think we did ever displayed it publicly for a very long time. It was a... Um, it, uh, what, what am I trying to say? It's, it was a... Uh, a big mistake. <laughs> What's the word I'm looking for? A huge mistake. A huge mistake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was controversial. In fact, I think I remember. I don't really have the source for this on hand right now, but I think I remember that uh, some of the senators, some of the Congress people at the time when this was being made, hated this, and they yeah. said at least one person suggested that 
so I waited on the yes, river. Yes, I think we went over this. Was it in? It was in one of our classes. Mm-hmm. Um, we definitely went over this, and yes, they wanted to, they wanted to destroy it um, because it it harkened back to that imperialism, mm-hmm. and that wasn't what the nation was supposed to be about, about mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. So basically, through artistic forms like this, we can see kind of America flirting with. <laughs> imperialism flirting with yeah yeah <laughs> you know it's very fun um but yeah i think it's also important to talk about kind of um briefly repre- different representations and diverse representations of jesus throughout time and we talked about theolectromenos graffiti and his kind of this embodiment mm-hmm. in the days of early christianity but soon after the days when jesus was represented by symbols he um he was represented indirectly by um, figures other than Jesus, right, from the Bible and also from classical myth, which I thought was interesting. Um, one of these forms is the Good Shepherd that yeah. became a very common Christian image, and we've pulled this this image from uh, the Catacomb of Calixtus from around the 3rd century CE um, of Christ as the Good Shepherd, um, which is an image where uh, you have this youthful shepherd uh, individual and uh, they're holding, he's holding this uh, sheep over his shoulders, which mm-hmm. draws from the classical uh, Creophoros or ram bearer imagery, yeah. which was kind of a, a religious sort of pagan classical form, mm-hmm. um, portraying like a, a sacrifice. Um, and he was sometimes represented indirectly by Jonah because of how Jonah spent three days in the whale. Um, and then Jesus was dead for three days before he mm-hmm. resurrected. Um, Daniel of the lion's den, yeah, or Orpheus, Orpheus, Orpheus. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. nice, yeah, Orpheus charming the animals, um, so there were also a number of depictions of andro- androgynous youthful Jesus, um, yeah, during this early period, which were, when we say androgynous, we mean it, <laughs> um, Jesus had boobs, yeah, in a lot of these, yes, in a lot of these he did, um, like here's, I pulled this image of um, the marble statue Good Shepherd from the fourth century, um, currently in the collection of the Vatican Museum, actually. Doesn't um, surprise me. <laughs> and this is Jesus. Again, he's very youthful in this. He has this long, curly hair. Um, it's very typical of classical portraiture. Mm-hmm. Um, just physically, you can tell that he's very youthful. Um, he does not have a beard, um, and he's, he's carrying a he sheep. He looks like a prepubescent boy. Yeah, uh, yeah, and that was kind of a common representation of Jesus at this time, as a very youthful uh, God, basically. And uh, again, he has his sheep kind of over his shoulders. Um, he's in this sort of classical contrapposto. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this statue, mm-hmm. moving along to this, this is called Christ as Teacher, also from the fourth century. It too is a marble statue. Um, and it is from the collection of the Museo Nazionale Romano. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to let you say that Ooh. so I don't, <laughs> I don't mess it up. Um, so this statue is really interesting because again you have the classical curls, you have the beardlessness, you have the youthful um, physiology, head slightly larger than mm-hmm. than uh, true to life, which is kind of typical of this transitional style from classical to medieval. But the interesting thing about this is that he definitely has breasts in this so it looks more like to me it looks more like a classical depiction of Hera 
the goddess Hera. I'm not taking like I'm not mixing up my my Greek and Roman mythology right now. Um, yeah, well, Hera was Greek, but yeah, she was Greek, and I believe like she was depicted very much like this. Um, yeah. So again, I think it was Hera. I could it could be another <laughs> another couple of gods, <laughs> but like it was definitely one of the one of them. Um, so I think that's really interesting because it doesn't you wouldn't look at that and think, oh, hey, it's Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, at first I believe people thought that this was a seated poetess statue, um, but no, it's uh, this is Jesus. So um, you know, but again, he's in uh, this classical kind of robe. Um, he has hips. Yeah. So this is a very kind of feminine depiction of Jesus. Um, and then we have this uh, mosaic from the Arian Baptistry in Ravenna. Um, Arianism in this context, of course, meaning the sect, the early sect of yeah. Christianity. Just throwing that out there. Not the um, other one. Yeah, no. Uh, but this baptistry, fun fact, it was built by Ostrogothic king Theodoric the Great. Um, Wouldn't it be nice to have a name that demands so much power? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And this is um, a mosaic that's pretty, pretty typical of this particular period, this particular location in Ravenna. Um, and it's a scene of Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist. Um, and the dove, the kind of holy dove, is coming mm -hmm. down directly, like straight from the sky and uh, spitting water on him. Yep. And <laughs> doves do that. And Jesus here is again represented with this long curly hair. Um, he's beardless. He's very youthful. He has a very, um, you know, like feminine physique here. He has a very kind of like soft. Um, physique, as opposed, by the way, to uh, the way that John the Baptist is yeah, rendered in the same. Yeah, John the Baptist looked very um, masculine. Yeah, mm -hmm. wearing sheepskins. Yeah, he's wearing sheepskins, um, and he he does have a beard, and um, you know it's it's interesting though that John the Baptist seems to be larger than Jesus, because mm -hmm. um, when you when you think about the hierarchy of scale. Normally, the most important figure would be the largest in the composition, but I think actually John is even bigger than what's supposed to be God over here. I actually am not sure right off the not top sure. of my head if that's God or Moses, because I, I think okay. I see. It could also be Moses. Honestly, it looks like Neptune. <laughs> so <laughs> it's King Neptune. <laughs> he's holding a a, a reed. Mm -hmm. So I I might be wrong. Um, I'm I can't. Not it's well some, versed in something my, for future research. Yeah, I'm not well versed <laughs> in my, my Catholic symbolism and art. And then um, for the last kind of piece that I pulled, I also want to talk just briefly about artistic rebellion against this kind of uh, perfected, you know, very uh, ethereal depiction of white Jesus in the 19th century, even by other white artists, white Western artists. Um, so there's this painting entitled Christ in the House of His Parents. It was made in around 1850 um, by painter John Everett Millay. Uh, it's oil on canvas. Um, and I'm just going to do a quick formal analysis here. Uh, this painting depicts Jesus as a child in the workshop of his father. And the composition you can see is immediately different from many iconic portraits of Jesus. Um, it's panoramic. It's decentralized to an extent. Uh, no halos are similar. Um, very realistic setting and portrayal of people within this, this piece. Um, 
you don't have that. This is not an icon, in other words. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a full scene. This is not, which wasn't completely unheard of or anything, but this is not like an icon. It's immediately distancing itself from that format. Um, uh, Jesus, the kind of subject matter here is that Jesus, is, as a child, has cut his hand on a nail, uh, leaving a wound on the palm of his hand, and some blood is dripped onto his foot, which symbolizes and foreshadows the stigmata. Uh, John the Baptist is also a child here, bringing water to wash Jesus' hand. Um, and you can see there's the removal again, complete removal of Greek and Roman classical garments and references, uh, i.e. togas, columns. You don't see any of that. The setting here, to me, looks distinctly English. Um, you know, we're, we're moving into kind of more, uh, you know, English yeah. or Celtic territory. And, oh, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're very humanized. The people in this... Uh, painting are people. They have flaws. Uh, Mary in this is portrayed with wrinkles on her forehead. Uh, God forbid. Yeah. Um, Jesus' father uh, is bald. <laughs> you know, he's he's this kind of bald guy with these very weathered hands. Um, Jesus' grandmother is here, which is a unique choice. Which, yeah. Like, so, you see, like, this is my whole thing. Like, the Catholic Church doesn't have a lot of most actually most of Christianity doesn't have a lot of information on who Mary's parents were. Um, I know you should check out the Golden Legend. Oh, see, like, I, yeah, yeah, we have they had that, but that's not necessarily biblically sourced. Oh no, that was basically like, like somebody was like, I'm gonna say <laughs> this about this. Are we are we as a society ready for me to call the Golden Legend Bible fan fiction? Y- yes, please. It's Bible <laughs> fan fiction. That's exactly what that is. <laughs> Um, but it's interesting because, like, if you look at, uh, references from Islam, like, they have, like, this huge, like, uh, genealogy. Mm-hmm. Like, it goes back, and they, they know exactly who Mary's mother was. And I was like, well, why don't Christians have that? But, okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. His grandma's there. Yeah. I mean, um, she's basically removed the nail from his hand with a, a pair of pliers, which is such a very, like, almost gritty you know, just very down-to-earth mm-hmm. moment. Um, so this was highly controversial uh, when it was first made um, because the figures were portrayed without that sense of divine purity or perfection or inhumanity. They're very embodied, very mm-hmm. real. They have wrinkles. They have marks. They have imperfections. Um, there's also this dirty, grungy environment. People weren't happy about that. The fact that there were... It's a workshop, though. <laughs> they weren't happy about it. It's supposed to be it. a carpenter. Like, there's wood shavings on the floor. I'm sorry. Uh, 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 you Couldn't can't sweep do that. up before the queen decides to stop by. <laughs> I just want to point out because these these images will be in the um, wherever we decide to upload them. If you zoom in, there's a bunch of sheep in the background, <laughs> and I'm I want to understand why, but they are the only things in the whole painting that is looking directly at the viewer, and it's all the sheep. All the sheep in the background are looking at the viewer, so that would be us. <laughs> and I just need to understand why. <laughs> Now that I can't answer. I know. <laughs> but Mary here is on the floor. She's she. The interesting thing is she's being comforted by her son instead of the other way around. And people didn't like that. Um, she's kind of pitiful in this. She's very sad. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were also, like, you know, uh, this would, to us today, this would look like a white Jesus depiction. He's ginger. Because right? he's ginger and everything. He's ginger. So, but this was racialized. This was racialized in a negative way. Um in the Builder, which was an English um, architecture and art review magazine of the 19th century, this they made a review of the art show uh, in which this painting was displayed, 
and they ripped into this. And they said, like, and I quote, uh, that there was a vulgarity of portraying Jesus as, and I quote, not my words, a red-headed Jew boy. So this was very, like, this was racialized in a very anti-Semitic way, which is uh, strange for us to look at now. See, without any of that background information, most people wouldn't see anything wrong here. Like, I mean, besides the fact that Jesus is white, and he shouldn't be white, but... Today, this would be very non-offensive, I think. Yeah. So, but this was like, it goes to show how how uh, domineering certain visual forms were at mm-hmm. this point in time, religiously speaking. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, Charles Dickens also ripped this, by the way. Really? Yeah, he ripped into this. <laughs> he said that Mary looked like an alcoholic. Oh, he said no. that she was ugly in this. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, Charles Dickens. Had to give his had to get his conservatism on, um, um, yeah. So I think, I mean, we could go on and on, but as I think, yeah. But I think that for my notes, uh, we're nineteen pages deep. I think that's good. <laughs> so one thing that I wanted to bring up, and probably the main, my main, I need to log back into my computer. The main thing I wanted to bring up was actually from. Um, an article that we read um, challenging white Jesus race and the undergraduate Bible classroom. Mm-hmm. And I think this, um, I found this really interesting because this whole idea of um, how Jesus has been experienced in, in multiple uh, communities. So rather you're white, um, black, or any, anybody, any, any person, there's a different experience for who Christ is. And basically, um, it impacts every part of our our society um, because we don't want to admit it, but like our society is very Christian based, very biblical, but biblically, biblically, biblically based. Biblically, yeah, that's a word. That's a word. Um, so basically, in this um, article, uh, two college professors, I believe it was two college professors, um, they they conducted some research at a Christian university. Um, I've never been to a Christian university, but I've been told that they have to take a survey, survey Bible class. Mm-hmm. Freshmen survey. coming. This basically, according to this article, they're saying that all freshmen are required to take a survey a New Testament course yeah, over the freshman year. Exactly. Um, and it was interesting because in their in their findings, they found that um, it was more likely for. Hispanic and uh, Hispanic and Black Christians to fail or do poor in this class than their white Christian counterparts, and a lot of that had to do with how they had experienced Jesus and Christianity and the Bible previously. Um, it seemed that both or all three um, groups of people had read the Bible previously, previous to college to um, university. But it's how that it was read. Um, it seems to be that. From oh, correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I got is that um, it seems that white Christians tended to be able to analyze the Bible more academically, while um, the other two groups were more literal. And in a academic con- ac- academic environment, it was expected to be th- them to be able to perceive it academically 
And let's ha- let's unpack what we mean by academic here too, because basically, what one thing that stuck out to me about this article is just the fact that they're saying that the mode of analysis, like literary analysis, that we consider that a lot of um, you know white individuals take for granted, um, is in fact informed by a tradition of white you know patriarchal empiricism, basically, mm-hmm. um, and that students of color were more likely to read and perceive the Bible in a different way uh, from white students, which kind of shows, and again, like this is a big subject that we could get into, but um, it kind of shows that um, the way that we, um, let me find my words, I brought my brain today, I swear to God. Uh, (laughs) Basically, it goes to show that the way that education as a whole is constructed in America and in the Western world, mm-hmm. hinges upon some really white patriarchal ideas of what academicism is, what intelligence is, what um, what analysis should be, what critical thinking should be, and in this case, that included um, a lot of non-literal interpretation of the Bible, based and 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 reading it in larger chunks and perceiving it as a broader literary unit essentially approaching it in a similar way to how you might approach a book or like a book report yeah um where students of color were more likely to um perceive it in terms of shorter um pieces of the bible shorter narratives um you know and to basically just to not make use of that knowledge in the same way um you know which is fine like it doesn't what i got from the article is that we do not stop often enough to analyze why we prize certain forms of intellectualism over mm-hmm. others. I mean, another another big example, and again, like this is a broad topic, we could get way deep into this, but another good example of um, sort of Eurocentrism and white centrism in academia is uh, the fact that in history we tend to prioritize um, written records over verbal records, and I know that there's like a point to be made there about how much different types of historical records, what probability they would have of indicating like, you know, the existence of like concrete individuals or concrete events or whatever, um, how much subjectivity may or may not interfere um, with different forms of historical record keeping. Um, But the verbal record is uh, used by a number of indigenous societies more than written records and um, preserves important cultural ideas, cultural legends, cultural histories and traditions, um, and is just as relevant to modern day indigenous societies as written records may be to modern day Western societies. Exactly. And I think it's important to like consider how higher institutions are actually teaching too, because they are, I believe the article actually pointed this out, that this was in like the on the first page, maybe the second page. Um, let me see. Um, that's not it. Oh, yes, on the second page of the article, um, I'm going to just quote this. Many of the institutions, like many others in American higher education, are not only predominantly predominantly white institutions, but dominantly white as well. Um, so the way our education system is set up, it's set up to cater to the dominant um, group that is there, which we can open a can of worms with that too, but we're not going to do that. But the whole point is of looking at how, uh, experiencing Jesus has affected everything 
everything from politics to socioeconomics to education <laughs> to everything to even how you read something so it's it's pretty interesting to um just kind of look at those things and consider that's kind of where we're at mm-hmm. yeah it's it is because i think it's important to unpack um the ways in which um religion christianity and jesus um are kind of intertwined in america with government with economics with cultural identity with cultural values um with racial disparities racial dynamics so yeah this has been a wonderful and somewhat depressing conversation (laughs) (laughs) well you know some parts of it are depressing but well some parts of it are depressing but i think that it also has it also kind of uh, reveals potential for new constructions of Jesus as yes. well. And I think that's what I want to end this on is like there there is endless potential. If there's endless potential throughout history to construct religious figures like Jesus in a variety of ways for a variety of political purposes, there are also endless variations and new constructions that could be made in the future. Yes. Uh, for better purposes. Exactly. So So yes. Thank you so much for doing this with me. I know yeah, thank it you was for me. a lot. Um, I'm sorry that we had to put it off a day because I broke my toe. You're good. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Um, heal, heal up your toe. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this has been another episode of Cool Art History. Please check our Instagram pages. Mine is the underscore underscore the underscore <laughs> cool underscore art underscore historian. Mine is uh, Jules in Space, all one word, underscore. And uh, all of our, uh, we'll be posting some information about this podcast there, um, as well as giving you um, directions as to where that image Image folder folder thing will be. Yes. Okay. All right. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Yay. See you next week. See ya.